Aloha! On this episode of Cold Brew, I will be sharing the Hawaiian Islands first and only known serial killer who has still never been caught. You are listening to Cold Brew, a true crime podcast fueled by cold brew coffee. I'm your host, Caitlin Brewer, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find me on social media at Cold Brew Crime to see images related to this episode. Welcome to Cold Brew. This is episode number three, and this week's Cold Brew comes from my grocery store. It is I mean, I guess a local Hawaii coffee company that kind of became bigger than Hawaii. You might be able to find it somewhere on the mainland. I'm not sure. But it's Kauai Coffee Company. They're pretty popular here. I mean, okay, so real quick. Folgers here on in Hawaii is more expensive than me purchasing Kauai coffee at the grocery store. Basic name brands that you would buy back home are not feasible here. So, which is totally okay because these local-ish coffees are delicious. So I made this and really have no complaints. It's really delicious. Apparently, Kauai Coffee started as a really small company. They're, all their beans are grown and roasted on Kauai, and they have become, you know, a mass distributor of coffee not just to Hawaii, I'm pretty sure. I didn't research them very much. I'm just here to say that it's delicious. Their packaging is blue and has Kauai coffee in yellow. I'll post a picture of it on my story. So that's this week's coffee. Okay, I'll be right back with the case after this. So if you don't know me personally, Um, You may be confused as to why I have gone from small-town Appalachian cases to Hawaii, and now all of a sudden I'm drinking Hawaii coffee. Surprisingly, I do live here in Hawaii, but I'm from North Carolina. As I mentioned briefly in the first episode, my husband is in the military and is stationed at Schofield Barracks on Oahu, which is where we live. Hawaii is one of the few states that has at least one base from each branch of the military, It's a lot to process, honestly. I mean, there is just a lot of us walking around, military fams and stuff, but it's awesome. It's a great community. It's a fun experience. So there are several small islands that make up the Hawaiian Islands, but there are only seven that people actually live on. If you've considered vacationing in Hawaii, you're probably familiar with the islands of Oahu, Hawaii, which is referred to as the Big Island, Maui, and Kauai. Oahu is the third largest of the Hawaii Islands and houses roughly one million people, which is two-thirds of all of Hawaii's population. And trust me, it shows. On Oahu, you can find the famous Waikiki Beach, Pearl Harbor, and also Hawaii's capital, Honolulu. Honolulu serves as a major hub for international business and military defense, as well as being the host to a diverse variety of East, West, and Pacific cultures, cuisine, and traditions. So I'm going to post a map of Oahu on my social media so you can visually see the places that I'm referring to in this episode, because geography is a lot, and it's very important in this case, and even more important to understand what makes up the island of Oahu. 
So we live on Oahu in Waikeli, which is between the center of Oahu and Pearl Harbor. Waikeli is a small housing community within Waipahu. Uh, You can see parts of Pearl Harbor while walking around in the community. It's a great central location from both sides of the island, and the airport is only 15 minutes away with mild traffic. I would love to tell you that I know everything about this island after living here for three years, but I (laughs) am really still clueless. There are so many different parts of this island, and they all offer their own unique things along with a lot of cultural history among all the locals. Hawaii is unlike any place I've ever been, much less lived, and even after three years, there is still a lot that I don't know. So with that being said, I am not an expert on this island. I definitely cannot pronounce most things correctly. I still don't even know what some things are in reference to food. So please know that I mean no disrespect by my poor pronunciation or lack of knowledge on any given topic. Although many people refer to this island as paradise, that doesn't mean that crime is not present. Unfortunately, I personally can attest to this with my short time on the island as we have had, just in three years, an entire car stolen from our parking spot, my purse along with other, you know, valuable belongings stolen in a separate incident, and one day I walked outside to see that someone had replaced a pair of my husband's cheap tennis shoes with their own old Nike shoes literally took his shoes off of our porch and put their old, similar-looking shoes down in the exact same place, hoping that we wouldn't notice. I was disturbed, to say the least, and, like, incredibly creeped out about leaving our shoes out after that. But from my understanding, the current crime rates are new and really disturbing to most of the residents on the island. There kind of seems to be a little bit of disarray among some of the locals about it. I did a little research on NeighborhoodScout.com, and to put it simply, your chances of being a victim of a violent crime in Hawaii are 1 in 402, but your chances of being the victim of a property crime are 1 in 35. I am in that one. I am that one times three. Uh, So when the idea of a serial killer arose in 1985, This island of Oahu, and more specifically the areas surrounding Honolulu, were very disturbed. The first known victim to be linked to the Honolulu Strangler, as they called him, or the Honolulu Rapist, was Vicki Gale Purdy. She was a military spouse, she was 25 at the time of her death, and lived in Mililani, which is just like a quick five miles north from where we live. Um, She lived with her husband, Gary. He flew helicopters in the army and was stationed at Wheeler Army Airfield, which is located right across from Schofield. Vicki originally was from North Carolina. She was Caucasian, blonde, stood at five foot five inches, and was 135 pounds. She was described as tough, adventurous, and had a large love for life. On May 29, 1985, in the early evening, Gary kissed his wife goodbye as she walked out the door to go clubbing in Waikiki with her friends. That was the last time he ever saw her. Gary went to search for her the next day after not hearing from her, and he found her car sitting in the parking garage of the old Shorebird Hotel down in Waikiki. 
Her friends said that she called them around 10 p.m., but she never showed up to meet them. A cab driver also told the police that he had driven her to the shorebird around midnight, and he confirmed that she was wearing a yellow jumpsuit and a red belt. Vicky's body was found the next morning. She was nude and her hands were tied behind her back. She had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and dumped off an embankment at the edge of Cahey Lagoon. Cahey Lagoon is right across from the airport. It's a really popular place for paddlers, and it has a large open field, which creates a bit of seclusion in the, you know, busiest parts of Honolulu. Eight months later, on January 14th, 1986, Regina Sakamoto, a 17-year-old and a high school senior at Lelehua High School, missed her bus from Waipahu to Wahiwa, where she went to school. Wahiwa, where her father lived, is near Schofield and is north of where she lived with her mother in Waipahu. Regina was Caucasian with dark blonde, kind of ashy brown hair. She was 4 foot 11 and weighed 105 pounds. Her school friends described her as shy but friendly and also careful. That morning when she missed her bus, she called her boyfriend around 7.15 from a nearby phone booth to tell him that she would be late for school. That was the last time anyone heard from her. The next day, her body was found roughly a mile from where Vicky's was at Cahey Lagoon near the airport runway. She was wearing only her blue tank top and white sweatshirt. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled and also had her hands tied behind her back. In 2018, on episode 5 of season 1, I think it is, of Breaking Homicide, which is on the ID channel, I highly recommend the show, they investigate the Honolulu Strangler. They were really able to get a lot of information that wasn't previously released to the media, and the police major at the time of the crimes, Louis Sosa, was on this show. He shared a lot of his knowledge on the case, and a few things that he shared that were not out in the media was that the victims were bound with the same type of parachute cord. All of their hands had been tied the same way with the same parachute cord. He also noted that Regina had been found with an electrical cord tied around her foot and secured on the shore by a rock, as if to ensure she didn't wash out from the bank. I'll be referencing and talking a lot about Louie later in the case. Okay, so so far we have two victims several months apart, but only two weeks passed before there would be a third victim. Denise Hughes was 21 and a secretary for a telephone company. She had moved from Hawaii five months prior after marrying a naval man who was stationed at Pearl Harbor. Denise had been commuting to work by bus for three months. She had predominantly Caucasian features, a round face, and brown curly hair. She was 5 foot 8 and weighed 154 pounds. Those who knew her said she always had a smile on her face, she was very outgoing, and was really active in her young Christian church group. Denise never showed up to work after waiting at the Pearl City bus stop on January 30, 1986. Her body was found in the Montalua Stream on February 1st by three young fishermen. She was wearing a blue dress wrapped in a blue tarp, and her hands were bound behind her back. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. At this point, HPD's Criminal Investigation Division formed a task force to investigate the similarities among these three murders. A little over a month later, the fourth victim, Luis Medeiros, was on a night flight back to Oahu on March 26, 1986. 
She had traveled to Kauai to attend the reading of her mother's will. Her family urged her not to take the night flight back, but Louise was in a hurry to get back to her three sons who were staying with her boyfriend's family in Waipahu. Louise was a 25-year-old single mother. She was local to Hawaii, but she also had some Caucasian features. She had very dark hair and stood at 5 foot 4 inches. She weighed less than 90 pounds. At the time of her disappearance, Louise was three months pregnant. Her body was spotted a week later on April 2, 1986, by road construction workers when looking off a Waipahu freeway overpass. She was laying near Waikeli Stream wearing only the red and white flowered blouse she was last seen in. Her hands were also tied behind her back. I am 75% sure that that overpass is legit like less than a two-minute walk from my house. So at this point, the police are sending similar-looking policewomen out undercover around the airport and Kehi Lagoon, but unfortunately the killer still finds another victim. Linda Pesci was the fifth and final known victim of the Honolulu Strangler. She was 36 and worked as a sales representative in Honolulu. Linda left her job around 6.30 p.m. on April 29th. She had stayed late after she had just found out she's receiving a promotion, and she never returned home. Linda was Caucasian, had dark brown hair, stood at 5 foot 4, and weighed 146 pounds. She was described by her friends as streetwise, tough, and fearless. Linda had hiked across the country by herself in the past years and had come to Honolulu to work as a nightclub dancer. Later, she moved to Guam to dance, and then she had come back to Hawaii. She had a 7-year-old daughter, and her friends said that she had really gotten a hold of her life once her daughter was born. Her roommate reported her missing on April 30th, and her car was found later that day parked near Nimitz Highway Viaduct, leading near the airport. A witness told police they saw the car parked on the road with its emergency flashers on around 9 p.m. the night before. On May 3rd, after receiving a tip, Linda's body was found on Sand Island, just across from Cahill Lagoon from the airport. She was nude and her hands had been bound behind her back. Louis Sosa says that the man that had come in with the tip says he saw some bones on Sand Island and then he actually went with the investigators to help look for them. He showed them everywhere except the exact location of Linda's body. And when they found and reviewed the bones that he had found, they were pig bones. In case you don't know, wild pigs live and wander all around Hawaii. It's a very strange thing to me, but... However, around the same time of the search for Linda's body, it was found roughly 150 yards away by a couple that was searching for their friend's squid traps. The man claims that a psychic had told him where to find Linda's body and that he just, you know, came to the police. The entire duration of these murders, the police never had a suspect. It wasn't until Linda's body was found that they finally brought someone in for questioning. The police had already had their suspicions of the man who had taken them to Sand Island. Sosa noted that the abductions occurred and all the bodies were found in or near the route between Eva Beach where the man lived in an air cargo company called Flying Tiger near the airport on Lagoon Drive where he worked. Eva Beach, spelled E-W-A, W makes a V slash B sound in Hawaiian, is about a 15-minute drive southwest from where I live and about 30 minutes from the airport. The police had issued a bulletin that said they were looking for a van with writing on the back, and Sosa said, that they had already been watching this man at that time, and they even watched him scratch his company logo off the back of his van. 
The first large break in Linda's case came when a witness said she saw a light-colored cargo van parked near Linda's car when it was stopped along the road. Police had set up roadblocks and had been talking to commuters that may have traveled the road around the same hours as Linda. They described a Caucasian man, medium build, in his late 30s or early 40s. Another clue that wasn't released to the media that Louis shared on Breaking Homicide was that there was semen found as a result of the sexual assaults in the victims, and that there was little to no sperm found, meaning it was likely from someone who had had a vasectomy. The FBI's Behavioral Science Unit produced a profile based on their studies of serial killings, and a news conference was given to describe some likely characteristics of the killer. It was said that he was likely to be an opportunist finding available victims rather than stalking a certain person. The suspect probably committed the crimes in an area that he knows best, like where he lived or where he worked. It was also stated that the suspect may not have a criminal record and might also be someone having marital problems or disagreements with their significant other. On May 9th, six days after Linda's body was found, police brought in a 43-year-old Caucasian man on suspicions of killing Linda. Howard Gay whose name was never released until recently, was found in Linda's work notes, and it's suspected that Linda had tried to sell him a pager. Howard came in voluntarily, according to Sosa. Howard just so happened to be the same person that led them to Linda's body. The suspect let the police photograph him and even agreed to a polygraph test, which he apparently failed. Sosa made a comment about Howard's body language during the interrogation, saying that it had signs associated with guilt. Like his arms were crossed, his head was down, and he was a little bit defensive. Sosa stopped the interrogation around 3 a.m. He personally confronted Howard and asked him if he killed Linda. Howard denied and said he didn't do it. However, Sosa felt that they had enough probable cause to arrest him. During the interview, Howard's girlfriend at the time had called her friend who was an attorney, and during a break in the interview, the attorney called to speak with Howard. Some inexperienced officers were working the receiving desk and patched the call through. She told him that she didn't want him to talk to the police anymore and if he had any issues to call her back. Sosa said that if Howard had wanted to talk to somebody sooner, he could have used the phone, but that they have no obligation to honor an incoming call. He called it a rookie mistake. Ten hours later, Howard was released from police custody. When the police took it to the prosecutors, they said there wasn't enough to charge the suspect with murder. Remember, this was before DNA. Howard Gay was the only real suspect in any of these murders. His girlfriend at the time had told police that she had engaged in bondage activity with him numerous times and that she felt that the murders were related to nights that they had been arguing. She said he would leave the house for extended periods of time and sometimes not come back until after work the next day. There were no more known killings after Linda's death in 1986, and on breaking homicide they might have found out why. They spoke with Howard's ex-wife, who he was still married to during some of his time in Hawaii. She was able to confirm that Howard had had a vasectomy, which the killer more than likely had had, but she also shared that their son had died not long after Howard's arrest in June of 1986. 
She said their son was changing a tire on the side of the road just after his high school graduation, and he got ran over. Howard left Hawaii not long after that to be closer to his ex-wife and their other son. She also told them that Howard had become a born-again Christian after his son's death. So if he was, in fact, the Honolulu Strangler, then this major life transformation in Howard could explain why the killing stopped and also that the police were suspicious of him could have been a reason. So why were they not able to charge Howard when all these signs seemed to lead to him? The police even obtained a search warrant at one point to search his van and his property, but there was nothing. They couldn't find any tangible evidence to truly connect Howard with any of these murders. There was another witness that had came forward later saying that she had seen a man with Linda the night that she went missing. She was able to point Howard out from a photo lineup, but she said she didn't come forward sooner because she was scared that Howard might recognize her because he had seen her that night. So even though all of these things pointed to Howard, there was no DNA evidence. There was no blood in his car or his home. There was no parachute cord to be found in any of his things. There was nothing connecting him to these five victims. There was only his name written in Linda Pesci's work notes. When the police let him go and eventually weren't able to charge him with anything, they still had a task force following him. They followed him to the mainland. They notified police wherever he moved to. They continued to track Howard until his death in 2003. Howard Andrew Gay's obituary stated that he passed away on November 2nd, 2003, after a long battle with kidney failure. Howard was born in Buffalo, New York on January 1st, 1943. He had been living in Apple Valley, California for 15 years. He was stationed at Georgia Air Force Base and was discharged in 1965. And in 1968, he was employed by Flying Tiger Lines at the Los Angeles airport. During his life, he traveled throughout the world training aircraft mechanics on large cargo planes. No one has ever been charged with the murders of Vicki Purdy, Regina Sakamoto, Denise Hughes, Luis Medeiros, and Linda Pesci. There are two more women that I strongly feel are connected to the Honolulu Strangler. Their cases have also never been closed. They are Lisa Au and Helen Carrera. On January 20th, 1982, Lisa Au, age 19, left the hair salon where she worked in Kailua and traveled to her boyfriend's sister's house for dinner. Her boyfriend, Doug Holmes, told her goodbye around midnight, and she headed back home towards Kailua in the rain. That was the last time anyone saw Lisa. They found her body on January 31, 1982, naked and decomposing near Tantalus Drive. There have been several theories about her murder, and one is that she was pulled over by someone impersonating a police officer. Little information has been released about how her body was found or the cause of her death. Two years later, on October 8, 1984, the body of Helen Carrera, who was 22 at the time and lived in Eva Beach, was found in an irrigation ditch in Cunea. She had been strangled. She was last seen the day before by her friends walking across the road to a bus stop in Waipahu. Cunea is just a few miles north of Eva Beach, where Howard Gay also lived. Police have never officially associated these two murders with that of the Honolulu Strangler because they don't have the same characteristics as the other five. I think it is very possible that these could have been early victims of Howard Gay and he just hadn't mastered his skill yet. 
Louis Sosa still feels like they arrested the right man, Howard Gay, back in 1986, and he believes that although these cases have never been closed and justice has never been served, that they are solved and that Howard Gay was the Honolulu Strangler. Cold Brew is recorded, edited, and produced by me. To be sure you don't miss future episodes, please subscribe to Cold Brew True Crime Podcast wherever you listen. If you like what you hear, I'd love for you to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and you can send any questions or comments about this episode to me on social media at Cold Brew Crime. I'm going to play a couple of promos for some new podcasts that I wanted to share with you guys after this episode, so stay tuned for that. Again, thank you so much for being here with me. Aloha! Did you know that globally, one-third of female murder victims were killed by an intimate male partner? My new independent podcast, Missing and Murdered Women, seeks to bring awareness to the global health crisis that is violence against women. Join us every Saturday starting May 9th to tell the story of a woman who has lost her voice on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. A trailer is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at the MMW Pod. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Hey, what's up, you guys? I'm Sarah, one of the hosts of the new podcast, Coffee, Wine, and True Crime. Each week, Jordan and I sit down with drinks in our hand and break down the most wild, unheard of cases in each state. Check us out every Monday on Anchor, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Stitcher. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CWATC Podcast and on Instagram at Coffee, Wine, and True Crime Podcast. So come join us with your drink of choice and we'll see you there.